Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. This is going to be, I think, I think, <laughs> a shorter entry than normal. I'm chuckling because I've said that so many times before, and then I end up actually having a long set of reflections. So I'm wearing my hat as Eusebius, the analyst, contributor and analyst to Times Live, and I will insert a little bit of a conversation I've had with an academic but by and large this is a short entry because i wanted an opportunity to give my view and not only to provide a platform for the view of other experts i do both um, depending on what i had for breakfast you're listening to eusebius on times live that's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. I, over the weekend, noticed that it's still a hot debate and it will be for weeks and months to come whether or not South Africa should allow Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, possibly to come to South Africa physically and not just online, be part of a BRICS summit. And if that were to happen, to not arrest him or whether they should arrest him. And now you've got lawyers and political scientists all weighing in, diplomats, politicians, the commentariat in general, and the debate is all the rage. I decided to interview James Grant on the legal question. And that was a deliberate slicing off of the legal question because I thought the legal question had not been dealt with in detail squarely because everything had been really muddled by, naturally so, our political interest in the geopolitics. And the first thing I want to do is to just tell you what the framing is going to be of this little entry and then get on with the two parts. In the event that you missed my interview with James Grant, I'm so sorry, you really missed out. James Grant, who was a former, is a former professor of law from Wits University, now based in Europe, absolutely brilliant mind, in detail explained why You've got to put the politics aside in legal adjudication. Obviously, international law as a branch of law is as politicized as, say, for example, constitutional law. So although law and politics can't be strictly kept apart ever, international law in particular is often based, such as customary international law, on treaties that are intrinsically political. But nevertheless, the business of the courts are always legal adjudication oriented not even oriented that is its purpose and he explained why there are legal complexities and it's not obvious that there's a legal obligation to arrest the guy if he comes here 
but that once you've worked through the complexities, the conclusion is the same for him. That yes, there are complexities. However, given that the Rome Statute had been domesticated, I think in 2000, it's part and parcel of South African law. The rule of law in turn demands and constitutional supremacy that the state follow case law that is effective law in terms of how the statute had been interpreted in the Al-Bashir case of 2015. And even if the actual source of law, the domesticated treaty, could leave legal academics differing with each other about how to interpret it, unless and until the Constitutional Court overturns the Al-Bashir matter, that precedent is effective law. In simple English, he thinks the state is legally obligated to follow case law, and a theoretical debate about how to interpret the statute is not going to help you if the precedent in the Supreme Court of Appeal is what must be prioritized over any verbal squabbling about the original text of the statute. Here are two or three clips from that conversation with James. This difficulty, which I referred to as uh, the sources of law problem, isn't solved. We don't know which one prevails. And so we need to solve the problem somehow. And the way which uh, you've explained it, uh, and in fact, uh, the way that the Supreme Court of Appeal, when al-Bashir, uh, the al-Bashir matter was uh, finally appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal in 2016, mm. uh, it's the route that they took. They first looked at uh, trying to solve the riddle of which source of law would prevail at international law, and they actually stated quite expressly that, in fact, they can't solve the puzzle. So they went on to say, well, here we go. We have to move on, and we move on to consider the effect of us domesticating it. Let's turn our attention, they said, to the implementation of the Rome Statute in our law, and it's called the Implementation Statute. And uh, you would expect that that would have been straightforward. Yeah. However, I have to say, with all due deference, the drafters of that Implementation Statute hashed it because it's not straightforward. So, for instance, you have provisions which say that, that a head of state may be tried and punished. And the question becomes, well, yes, but how on earth do you try somebody when there's no authority within the statute to arrest them in the first place? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's literally absent. <laughs> and the problem there is that the drafters clearly went to the Rome statute and cut and paste that provision. So you just just to add to the complexity, it exists in the Rome statute that there's this difficulty of how on earth you bring somebody to trial because there's uh, no arrest procedure contemplated within the Rome statute. So the cut and paste thing uh, didn't work because they didn't think it through. So the Supreme Court of Appeal had quite some uh, work on its hands.
and it had to eventually turn its attention to the very clear steps that are demanded of the officials in question. Mm. And that's where all of the real work was done. So all of the rest of the stuff in the judgment, one can actually put it to one side. And as lawyers, we say, uh, what is the ratio? It just means what is the part of the judgment that actually did the work? And the work was done by turning to the practical provisions, which say the moment a arrest warrant is issued, it, it will be forwarded to the relevant country's officials. Those officials must forward it to a magistrate in um, their district. That magistrate must endorse that document and issue an arrest warrant, which may be executed anywhere in South Africa. Yeah. Once that's done and the person is arrested and brought before the magistrate, the magistrate is then required to engage in a very straightforward and very limited inquiry, which is, is this the person concerned? Was he arrested according to the ordinary procedures? And were his rights uh, respected as they are enumerated in the Bill of Rights? End of inquiry. And if that uh, all of those questions are ticked, the magistrate must order his uh, uh, further detention and surrender. Okay, so that's the law out of the way. And I said I was going to give you the framing, but I just got on with it. So that's the law out of the way. But I wanted to comment on this politically because you, obviously James and I didn't quite get into that. And I, I really want to make a very simple point, which is why I said to you this isn't going to be a long entry. For me, on the political question, it's, it's in one sense quite simple. The government must simply be honest. You can't have your cake and eat it, even though a cheesy friend of mine once said, what's the point of having your cake if you can't eat it? They must decide, are you committed to the treaty or not? If you aren't committed to the treaty, don't pretend that you are. Come out of the closet and be very clear that you do not care about the Rome Statute and you don't care about the ICC and that your beef with it is so strong that you think its weaknesses from your vantage point, morally, procedurally, or otherwise, politically, piss you off and give you good cause to withdraw. Explain that to your citizens, constituencies, to the world, if you think it deserves an explanation, and get rid of it through the proper legal mechanism as part of your law, and we all move on. And then citizens can judge you on your decision as a government of the day and we'll tell you what we, we think in the various forms of accountability that exist for, for, for giving you feedback for your decisions. I think it's that simple. But what we in fact have is a government that wants to be seen to be deeply committed to normative international principles that are a high bar for how states should behave, including Russia, uh, Sudan, and at the same time, it wants to be able to trample on its own rule of law, which is a basic cornerstone of South African legal culture. And it wants to also trample on a treaty that it has domesticated. Now, you can't have all of those things.
You've got to just make a decision. And I think we've got to insist that Minister Naledi Pando, the president, this government of the ANC, give us clarity on what its position is. Because right now, it wants all scenarios to be played out and to pretend that it is committed to all scenarios. It is in the camp that thinks the International Criminal Court is bullshit. It is in the camp that thinks that even if the Global North are not signatories or don't really strictly, even when they are signatories, comply with customary international law properly with the spirit of international human rights jurisprudence, various covenants that are supposed to be an expression of the best of the international community, dating back to the founding of the United Nations, that nevertheless we should be better than them and set the standards for moral decency internationally and not walk away just because they are bad examples. But then it also wants to be in a category where it is not setting the example, but actually emulating the badness of the global north by being equally dodgy and inconsistent in terms of giving expression to human rights principles that are in our domestic constitution, but which do not find themselves expressed in the actions of South Africa from Geneva to New York and other fora, including, by the way, when it comes to the African Union. And that's my problem with our darn government, is that our foreign policy framework, I don't expect it to be neat. There's a lot of gray when it comes to foreign policy in the world and how it is constructed and how it plays out. That's why ultimately, even if you have a billion and one theories, we all come back to realism in the end in international relations theories. It's about self-interest and a complicated game between projecting values, but secretly you are operating behind the scenes on the basis of maximizing the material self-interest of your people. I get that. Right? I'm no, I can't pretend that, that being a purist about international relations is going to get us anywhere. But South Africa is bad at all of these things. It's bad at pretending to be a purist. It's bad at pretending to be a pragmatist. It's bad at pretending to be non-aligned. It's bad at pretending that there is complexity. It doesn't seem to have any coherence, which is worse than being in any of those camps. And so my conclusions, political analysts, is that not only are we frustrated by having a government that doesn't want to come out of the closet about what it really thinks and walk away from the treaty if that's what it wants, at least we'll have certainty, which is more important than vagueness. But the sum total of everything I've just said is that we have a government that at best can be described, and the at best is a bad situation, at best can be described as being incoherent on key questions of the day when it comes to our international standing on critically important global affairs. And that's not a good look. Yeah.